Well, good morning. Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. Psalm 150. And let's do this a little differently this morning. If you can find the passage in the Pew Bibles, we're going to read it together. So Psalm 150. It's a psalm that deserves to be read in unison, I think. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Father, would you help me to preach this passage with uh, the passion, the clarity, and Father, the anointing of your Holy Spirit that uh, it deserves, that you would be praised, Father God. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. So friends, let's read this together, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do please sit down. Well, let me, uh, before we get into this passage, just remind you that next week we are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And you can pick up these flyers at the back of church on the way out. We called this sermon series God's Answer to Atheism from the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the tools that we've provided for you to help you with inviting friends to this kind of uh, sermon series is a questionnaire. It's on the reverse side of the flyer, and it's also online. And so if you pick that up and use that questionnaire, perhaps with a friend or a colleague or neighbor, uh, that's next week, the new sermon series beginning next Sunday. This Sunday, we're completing our four-part series that has gone throughout the year on uh, proclaiming the gospel with our four core values of fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship. And this morning is worship. And what we've been saying all year is we've uh, been celebrating the past with a 150th anniversary, but not being stuck in the past, looking forward to the future with 2020 vision. We've been saying that all these uh, values that we share in common need to be driven by and centered upon the gospel, fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship. And this morning we're looking at worship. Well, let me begin by like this. I remember once uh, going to a Bible study with a friend uh, back in England, a Bible study that was uh, being run by a church there in England. And there were 10 or so people meeting for this Bible study in a nice room in a pleasant house. And together we carefully studied the text. We listened attentively to each other's points of view. And at the end, we shared polite prayer requests. Afterwards, we drank coffee or tea from pretty little cups. And we smiled sweetly at each other over a smattering of gentle, nice conversation. And at the appropriate moment, my friend and I made our appropriate excuses, said goodbye, 
and went to his car parked just outside the home. As soon as we had closed both doors, I looked at him and said, Let's make some noise! And proceeded to crank up the music as loud as it would go. This psalm is cranking up the music as loud as it will go. Everything about it is noisy. Now, not every worship song has to be loud any more than every song has to be loud. But this psalm tells us that there is room for what I call voluminous exuberance. Uh, Room for that in worship together. That's a fancy way of saying that being loud about God is good. So let's look at that theme from this passage this morning. First, what is worship? Second, what is Christian worship? Third, the exuberance of God. Fourth, the voluminous exuberance of Christian worship. So first, what is worship? Well, in this psalm, of course, we are commanded many times to praise God, to worship God. But why? Why? Does God need our praise? Does He lack something? Is God a little bit insecure and needs to be affirmed in His value by His people? Is He like a a sort of teenage girl standing before a mirror saying, do I look fat in this dress? No, you're wonderful, God. You really are. Actually, there is nothing distinctly religious about worship. You may not think you're religious and think that worship is something that Christians alone need to think about, but actually, we are all worshipers. Worship is what humans do when they enjoy something or someone. What do I mean by that? Well, consider with me, if you enjoy the baseball game, you will tell people about it. If you enjoyed the gig, you will tell people about that. If you enjoyed your date, you will tell each other about it. Wasn't that great? Worship, you see, means literally saying that something is worth a lot. It is worth ship, saying it is worthy. Worship is saying, isn't that worthy? Isn't that great? That's worship. We are all worshipers. But not only is it a natural response to enjoying something or someone, worship is actually also a part of the enjoyment. Isn't that right? We, we love to share what we think is enjoyable. It increases the enjoyment. We want to tell other people about the latest good restaurant. Part of enjoying the restaurant is telling other people about it. And by uh, contrast, not having anyone to share a stunning sunset with makes the enjoyment of that sunset diminish. And being able to tell someone sitting next to you about the wonderful sunset not only expresses the enjoyment, but increases the enjoyment. So C.S. Lewis uh, put all of that like this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. He continues, 
The Scotch Catechism, uh, usually known as the Westminster Catechism, the Scotch Catechism says that man's, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But, Lewis says, we shall then know what th- that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him or praise Him, as Psalm 150 puts it, In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. It's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? Because, you see, worship is a natural response to an expression of joy. We're all worshipers. And when we enjoy something or someone, we worship it. We say it is worthy, and in doing so, we enjoy it all the more. So second, though, what about distinctly Christian worship? For, of course, there is something distinct about Christian worship. What does, uh, what does this psalm and what, do we, what does the book of Psalms as a whole say about distinctly Christian worship? Of course, there's a lot we could say. But what I want to say, I want to introduce just like this because it comes out of the passage. I rather like the story of the newly minted pastor who was uh, just uh, come out of seminary and was leading his first church. And in this first church, he was trying to persuade the deacons of the Baptist church that he was uh, the pastor of now uh, to adopt a new approach to their worship services, a uh, difficult enterprise at the best of times. And uh, he had done everything that they tell you to do, you know, due process and all that kind of thing. And he'd made his case from the Bible, and it was a compelling case. It wasn't anything Terribly radical, it was clearly in Scripture. But as the meeting wore on, finally one of the deacons stood up in in exasperation and just said, I don't care if it's in the Bible, it ain't Baptist and we ain't doing it. Now, why is it that so much of our Christian worship is dull? Not so much here, but in general. I think it's because of a theological reason. It is because too often you and I think that uh, worship is not a response to an expression of joy in God, but instead we think worship is an attempt to gain God's favor. We are too easily tempted to believe that worship is doing something to God, to bargain with Him. If I sing this song well, I will have a good week, etc., But no, worship is enjoying God in response to the gospel. And the book of Psalms as a whole makes that clear. Let me just uh, do that for you in a paragraph. The book of Psalms starts with a call to follow God, Psalm 1, to choose the path of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. Then Psalms tells us that integral to this is to kiss the psalm, uh, kiss the son, Psalm 2. That is to put our faith in God's anointed which as Christians we believe is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to believe in Him. Then Psalms tells us that even the law, in the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, leads us to say, save me, or as it puts it, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. That's what the law does to you, uh, Psalms tells us. Then the Psalms of Ascents that we looked at this year calls us to ascend, to take steps of discipleship according to the same trust in God's gospel. 
And then finally, Psalms finishes with a series of Psalms which have what we are calling this morning voluminous exuberance. So the book of Psalms starts with a call to put our trust in the gospel, and then it ends with a response to that gospel, joy, exuberance. One of the great Psalm scholars, Walter Brueggemann, puts it like this. The expectation then of the Old Testament is not finally obedience, but adoration. And you see, that means that Christian worship, if it is to be worthy of the name, must not only be about God, but in response to God's saving work in Christ. You see, that is why having evangelism or the proclamation of the gospel for non-Christians on Sunday morning in church is not like mixing oil and water, but an essential component of Christian worship. For the gospel must be proclaimed to Christians and non-Christians so that we can both respond to Christ, God's saving work, uh, with joy. So, my friends, worship is not doing something to God. It is not trying to bargain with God to gain His favor. It is responding to what God has done, relishing it, thrilling in it, loving it, enjoying it. So, we're all worshipers, you and I, all humans, because worship is a natural and inevitable response to whatever we consider enjoyable, whether it's an iPhone or whatever it is. And worshipping it is part of the enjoyment, saying this is worthy, this is great. Christian worship, distinctly, is responding to the gospel with joy, and that honors God, for it is His gospel. Third, then, the exuberance of God. I love this psalm. Look down with me at verses 1 and 2, and you'll see there that it expresses one aspect of the gospel that is worth enjoying Worth worshipping, saying it is worthy, worth enjoying. What is that aspect? Namely, that God is exuberant in His might, excellence, and greatness. <laughs> so, my friends, this is no penny-pinching God. This is a God who lives large. He is not driving a smart car. He's driving a Hummer. The engine is revving, the sanctuary cannot hold him, the universe throbs with him, his actions are not quiet and respectable, they are mighty. His personality is not small and quite good, it is great and excellent. <laughs> I came across a cartoon a little while ago that showed a minister uh, rather solemnly inspecting a worship attendance chart, and it had in this cartoon one of his parishioners standing next to him saying something like this, I'm no expert, but perhaps you shouldn't close each sermon with, but then again, what do I know? <laughs> well, this psalm is all against that, isn't it? Because it's no postmodern God of uncertainty. What do I know? He's revealed Himself in His Word. This God is not tolerating our perspective and fitting into our global pluralistic niceness. He's bigger than that. He has His own divine perspective from the mighty 
heavens above ours and the true perspective. Of course, neither, though, is this exuberant God the modernistic God of colonial power politics in the name of religious truth, but not really in advance of that truth. Why do I say that? Because, you see, His mighty deeds, what are they? They are His saving actions. He is not just sort of muscularly asserting Himself. This God acts with might when He rescues slaves from Egypt, when He saves a prostitute who has faith, when He raises up a shepherd boy to be king, when He brings back captives to their home, when He is born in a stable and dies on a cross. Those are His mighty deeds. Nor, though, is this exuberance only about what He does, as if He is simply an activist God, No, it is also who he is in his own person. It is his excellent greatness. And in this idea of excellence, there is a sense of aesthetic appreciation for his beauty to his exuberance. His excellent greatness is like the roar of Niagara Falls or the vastness of Lake Michigan or the fine-tuned balance of the stars performing their dance in the heavens. This exuberant God filled with grace, overflowing with grace to you this morning, is to be praised in the same way, though much more, uh, that uh, a home run or a grand slam in the World Series is to be praised. Or a newlywed couple is showered with confetti and applause. Certainly praised in church, though actually the sanctuary here in an Old Testament sense is fulfilled in the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is every true Christian. You, if you're a Christian, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a sanctuary. So praising Him in the sanctuary, in the building, means praising Him as we worship together, of course, but it also means praising Him with our bodies, our time, our lives. And all of this is not out of duty, but out of joy. Now, of course, it is our duty to go to church and to praise God. But to emphasize the duty is like telling a newlywed couple that it's their duty to leave the reception and spend the first night together. Some things can be joyful duties, you know. And enjoying this exuberant God in worship is like, then, enjoying your favorite book or movie. It'd be like receiving a letter from Hogwarts School that it's your duty to go. That it is your duty makes it even better. It is what is due to you, created in God's image, to be a worshiper of God. And it is what is due to God in response to who He is, what He has done. This exuberance, this grace. You see, my friends, when we grasp this, it is... This exuberance that makes all the disappointments of church go away. This exuberant God is far above what she said 
or he did. It's far above a committee meeting. It's it's far above your upbringing and how you experienced church when you were five. It's far above your romantic heartbreaks. It's as far above all as that as the Niagara Falls is far above a puddle of rain. So what is worship? Worship is the natural response to what you enjoy. Whatever you enjoy, you will find you are saying, this is worthy. You are worshiping. Christian worship is distinct, of course. And Christian worship is a joyful response to the gospel that gives God glory for the gospel is His plan. And this exuberant God is part of that gospel to which we can joyfully respond. Well, how do we do that? Well, fourth then, the voluminous exuberance of Christian worship. So look down with me uh, from verses 3 to the end of the psalm. And you'll see that the psalmist, as this uh, psalm is concluded, is really reaching for every possible instrument he can think of. And if you read the commentaries or consult the Bible dictionaries, you can find the various standard descriptions of these particular musical instruments that we have translated for us, and they're listed there. This psalm, I have to say, in particular, this portion of the psalm always reminds me of one rather humorous instance that I had in church life some years ago. Uh, We were renting space for our church plant from another church whose philosophy of music was much more traditional than ours. And one of the leaders of the other church uh, called me up uh, on the phone to complain that in our worship service we were getting out of hand. You know, we were were using percussion and a variety of instruments and it was loud, you see. And I I was, uh, you know, I was being as pastoral as I could and so I was listening to his complaint at some length and being gentle and kind and, and all that. It was, it was a hard reach for a rugby player, but I got there after years of pastoral ministry. And uh, Anyway, I listened for a while, and then I, I, this, this psalm came to my mind. And so I, I said, uh, when there was a break in the conversation, if he had heard of Psalm 150. And he said, oh, uh, well, you know, obviously it's in the Bible, so you know, he needed to have heard it. So he said, yes, of course. And so I said, well, can I read it to you? And he said, okay, you know, I'm a pastor. You can't complain when I start to read the Bible to you. So uh, I, read, I read Psalm 150 to him over the phone from beginning to end. There was a long pause. He said, I'll have to think about that. And we said goodbye. And afterwards, as long as we didn't infringe on their conscience, they didn't infringe on ours. Now, you and I know that there are issues of conscience here in terms of musical instrumentation. And Christians have had many different approaches to what kinds of musical instruments uh, can be used in Christian worship together. I'm a historian in background, and some of it amuses me. Uh, I've always found it a little bit ironic that nowadays the organ is deemed to be the most traditional of musical instruments when actually a few hundred years ago, and for a historian, that's a short period of time, you see. A few hundred years ago, for Protestants, the organ was viewed as distinctly risque. 
um, because of its association with Roman Catholicism and before that with pagan pipe music, you see. You can read about these uh, controversies that Protestants had some hundred years ago. And the Puritans, by and large, as you may know, they worshipped unaccompanied without any musical instruments because they thought that uh, there was no uh, obvious musical instrumentation in the New Testament and they viewed uh, the Old Testament descriptions as having passed away with the sacrificial system. Uh, Anglican chant, I grew up in the Church of England, Anglican chant is a now very rare but once quite common Reformation way of singing psalms. And when I was growing up, you could still occasionally hear it in a country church or a great cathedral. If some of our confusion about this as we infringe on each other's consciences uh, could not be serious, it really would be very funny. And my, funny, uh, my favorite funny story about all this actually comes from the mission field. I heard it several times from one person who loved the story. Apparently, uh, in one area of Africa one time, the missionaries in this particular location were trying to introduce some new forms of, of instrumentation you know, in worship. But at the same time, the indigenous uh, African Christians were trying also to introduce some new forms of instrumentation in worship. Interesting, you know, little thing going on. And the missionaries, you see, wanted to have some drums. And the Africans wanted a guitar. (laughs) Well, here's how it went down. The missionaries said, guitars are out of the question because who are we to worship God like Eric Clapton on Guitar Hero Riff? What about the African Christians? Well, they said that drums are out of the question because who are we to worship God with the drum beat of a witch doctor? I really don't know what they would have made of the uh, trumpet here, which was a ram's horn, we think, used in warfare as a very loud instrument, like the bagpipes for the Scotch or the martial drum for the English. Uh, I don't think that had really entered their, their head yet. Now, if verses 3 to 5 tell us anything, they surely tell us it's not the kind of musical instruments you use that matters primarily. Of course, it could be done better or worse with more decorum or more appropriateness for the content of the songs and all that. But surely if these verses tell us anything, rather than drawing from other wisdom or other parts of the Bible, these verses tell us that it's not the kind of musical instruments you use that matter. The responsible commentators will make it clear that bar the symbols, uh, and even then we're not sure what the two different kinds of symbols were, or whether it is two different kinds of ways of using those symbols instead, uh, except for the symbols because they were made of bronze and so they have survived and people have dug them up and you can see them. Except for that, we don't know for sure what these instruments were even though we can make good educated guesses, as of course we have. The trumpet, we think, was probably, as I say, the ram's horn, a very loud instrument used in warfare, like uh, with Joshua uh, and the Battle of Jericho and other places in the Old Testament. Lute and harp, we think, were different kinds of string instruments, uh, and so uh, different kinds of them, but both, we think, string uh, in, their, in, their, uh, in their instrumentation. Tambourine, 
we think, was probably a handheld drum used by women in dance, as in Exodus after the crossing of the Red Sea. But what this description really says, surely, is that anything can be used when done appropriately in in wisdom and honoring God. It, It is wind, percussion, and string instruments. Uh, Tim Hughes, uh, the author of the song, Here I Am to Worship, Uh, he once uh, spent a year in South Africa working with children and leading worship music. And one time he remembers finding that in the Prince of Peace congregation in Durban, that as they gathered there were no instruments at all, not one. And so he records, he wondered to himself, How on earth are we going to worship? He says, a moment later, the place was filled with beautiful melodies as these believers began to sing from the overflow of their hearts. He realized then, he says, that worship is not about music. It's about Jesus. Psalm 150 says, whether you blow it, bang it, or pluck it, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because everyone is a worshiper. Worship is the natural human response to what we enjoy and furthers that enjoyment. And so to be told to worship God is to be told to reorientate yourself around what is truly and ultimately enjoyable, what is most enjoyable, and enjoy Him all the more. (laughs) Why? Because Christian worship is a response to the gospel. God's saving acts, person and character, exuberantly poured out upon you. To kiss the Son, to believe in Him, to relish Him, enjoy Him, How? With everything you've got. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, help us to worship you with everything we've got. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.